It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 196 for June 13th, 2010. Recorded June 11th, 2010. I really like it when something that's already good gets better. OneNote is one of those applications that has improved significantly from the previous version. When I start gathering information for a product review, I use Microsoft's OneNote to store my thoughts and comments, along with reference information and plans to test the application. As the review progresses, I add information to OneNote and start writing the review right there. When the review nears completion, I copy it from OneNote to Dreamweaver. This is a process that I started with OneNote 2007. It's even better with the Office 2010 version. Now, that's not to say OneNote is the perfect tool. Almost. But there is one huge annoyance. Microsoft Groove. That's the tool that can be used to synchronize OneNote files on several computers. It doesn't work properly with 64-bit computers. I had hoped that Groove might be updated in 2010, but that seems not to have been the case. There's a new Groove server, but I don't run a Windows server, so I can't use it. I also can't use a SharePoint server for the same reason. That leaves Microsoft Live as the only remaining synchronization option for Microsoft, and I still haven't accepted the idea of using a Microsoft-hosted storage facility on the Internet, or as others might have it, in the cloud. I need to have OneNote files on at least three computers. Fortunately, I can do that with Always Sync. It's a needlessly complex solution to what should be a simple problem, but it works. The 2010 version of OneNote has a new file format. You'll need to convert existing files to the new format if you want to use some of the new features, or if you want to store OneNote files in Microsoft Live. You might expect this to elicit a complaint from me, but no, it won't. Microsoft has done three things that make this utterly painless. First, you can continue to use the old format if you're sharing files with anyone who is still using OneNote 2007. Second, the conversion process is a two-way operation. 2007 files can be converted to 2010 format, and 2010 format files can be converted back to 2007 format. That's kind of a first for Microsoft. And third, when you convert a file to the new format, the new format will automatically be used by all the other machines that share the file. That was a pleasant surprise. That third point really surprised me. I had expected to have to redefine everything on the other machines, or at least to be required to relink the files. But OneNote simply noticed the 2010 format file was present and used it. The latest versions of the Office suite might spoil you. Access, for example, has never required the user to save a file. The instant you finish editing a record and move to another record, the change is committed. The new version of Word will keep by default four unsaved documents for up to four days, so that even if you type a quick note, print it, and then close it without saving, you can always get it back. The same is true for Excel. Now, for this to work, autosave must be turned on, and you must have the document open for at least long enough for autosave to have run once. By default, that's every 10 minutes, but you can change it if you want. 
OneNote is an application that never requires you to save a file, like Access. I still occasionally press Control-S at the end of a paragraph. Old word processor habits die hard. I remember back in the days when word processors died frequently. And to save yourself a lot of rework, the end of a paragraph was return, Control-S. Saving the document every time you finished a paragraph. Well, pressing Control-S doesn't save the document. In fact, it doesn't do anything. New text is committed immediately. If you're working on a local shared file, more than one person can edit the single file simultaneously. Although I haven't seen this in action, I presume that it functions the way Word's new collaboration features work. Instead of locking the entire document, the edit function locks only the paragraph that's open in the editor. It's really pretty slick. The first time you open OneNote and try to use it, you may be a bit overwhelmed by the structure. It seems rather complicated at first, but it's really an example of extreme simplicity. The top level of organization is the notebook. Now, I think of this more as a filing cabinet or a major category. For example, I have a TechBiter cabinet along with other cabinets for clients, personal information, work, and information that's synchronized with OneNote Mobile. Below that in the level of organization are folders. You might think of these as drawers in a filing cabinet. For TechBiter, I have folders or drawers that contain program ideas. These are projects that I'm still working on. Previously reviewed products, that's the review is complete, but I retain my notes for later review. And configuration settings, useful information that I need when I'm setting up a new computer. The lowest level of organization, the greatest detail, consists of pages and subpages, although I view a page more like a file folder because it can contain a lot of different things. The subpages are helpful for big projects, such as Microsoft Office Suite 2010, for example, or Adobe's Creative Suite 5, both of which contain a lot of separate components and have a main page plus a lot of subpages. If you're a student or you do research for work, you might find it useful to dock OneNote to the right side of the screen. This leaves most of the screen available for searching and reviewing. As you find information you want to include in a report, just paste it into the OneNote panel. And that brings up copy and paste. Much improved. By default, if you paste text from a document or a website, you get a link to the original document and all of the source formatting. In some cases, I want all that, but in most cases, I don't. In OneNote 2010, I can specify the default as paste plain text. When I want more, it's easy to change the settings after pasting the text in. To retain the source information for attribution in a later report, you'll want to leave enabled the function that includes the source of the text you're pasting. The find function is better, too. Control-F searches the single page that you're on. Control-E searches every page in every tab in every folder and presents a list of locations. That is a winner. The ability to tag a paragraph helps organize your text. During the time I'm writing a review, I might write something that I may not be entirely certain is accurate. So I press Control-3. That places a purple question mark in the left column as a reminder that I need to confirm this point before I complete the report. By default, OneNote has about three dozen predefined tags. You can modify these or delete them or add your own. The first nine tags may be applied via keyboard shortcuts, Control-1 through Control-9. To clear a tag, you simply use the same keyboard shortcut you use to set it. And yes, individual paragraphs may have more than one tag. In addition to placing a symbol in the left margin, the tag can format the text, either color, bold, italic, or underline. 
and it can add a background highlight color if you want. OneNote 2010 offers basic styles for headings, bullet points, numbered lists, and stuff like that, but keep in mind it's not a word processor. You can also add math equations, and OneNote supports the conversion of handwritten text or math equations to text or math equations on screen if you have Windows 7. The ability to send or receive information from other parts of the Office suite continues from the previous version. How much for all this magic? OneNote is available in the larger Office suites, but you can also buy the product individually for $90. And it's available this time around in the Home and Student Edition, $150 for up to three computers. And students could really use OneNote in compiling research notes. The Home and Student Edition includes Word, Excel, and PowerPoint in addition to OneNote. The bottom line on OneNote, for cats, if you need to organize information, OneNote will certainly help you. The first time I saw OneNote, I didn't understand it, possibly. That's because it didn't do a lot in that iteration. The second time I saw it, I liked it and started using it. With OneNote 2010, the program has improved to the point that it is an essential part of my daily workflow. You can pre-order the Office 2010 suite now. It'll begin shipping in mid-June. Oh, by the way, it is mid-June almost, so you won't have to wait very long. For more information, visit the Microsoft website. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, which is, of course, www.techbiter.com. Adobe announced a new version of Lightroom 3 this week, and the casual observer would be forgiven for being a bit confused about which products by Adobe are meant for which markets. There's the free online Photoshop.com at the low end. Photoshop and Photoshop Pro occupy the high end. Photoshop Elements is used by point-and-shoot photographers and some serious amateurs. So where exactly does Lightroom fit? When I talked with senior Adobe product manager Tom Hogarty, he said that it spans the space between professionals and serious amateurs. Lightroom 3 should please both of those groups. This version of Lightroom has been in a long beta program that is unusual not only because of its length, but also because the beta version was available to anybody who wanted to take the time to download it. In all, the program was downloaded 600,000 times. And feedback from all those beta users was instrumental, Hogarty says, in allowing Adobe to improve the import process and noise reduction, among other things. The beta program is now ending, and the final beta will cease to function on June 30th. Starting on June 8th, Adobe made a 30-day trial of the new version available, and the product is now on sale at Adobe's website and other online retailers. It will be in stores soon, probably within the next week. Lightroom 3 is considerably less expensive than Photoshop, but at $300, or $100 if you upgrade, it's still a little bit pricey if you're not at least a serious amateur. There are lots of reasons why you would want it. In the old days, we created photographs on film. Labs could count on about half of the images they received being underexposed and half being overexposed. Photographers sometimes used the wrong film, daylight film under tungsten light, for example, or the other way around, tungsten film under daylight. But labs combined automated densitometers, color analyzers, and human operators to fix those problems. If you used anything but the lowest-cost drugstore film processor, you would get back a reasonably well-exposed, color-corrected print. Today, it's up to you to fix the exposure problems and the color balance. 
This is relatively easy with any of today's photo editing programs, and in many cases the process can be at least partially automated. Some problems that weren't correctable before now are, and sometimes with surprising ease. For example, if you've ever had to tilt a camera up to include part of a building, you've seen the keystone effect that causes the building to appear to be leaning over backwards. High-end photo editor programs have had ways to correct these problems for many years, but now they're being included in modestly priced programs such as Lightroom. You'll see a picture on the TechBinder Worldwide website that I took several years ago at Via Calori. The image would have been a lot better if I'd been able to take it from about 30 feet in the air, but I was standing on the ground, so that wasn't an option. It is an example of extreme keystoning. I used Lightroom's perspective correction tools and straightened the image substantially. Although that significantly improved the image, there were two areas near the bottom left and right where nothing existed. So I sent the image off to Photoshop CS5. CS5's content-aware fill did a nearly perfect job on the left side of the picture, somewhat less so on the right, but a bit of additional editing, about 10 minutes in all, fixed the problems. And the resulting image, I think you'll be surprised. It's still not perfectly straight and square, but given the image I started with, it is simply amazing. And there are other problems that have never been fixable. Most lenses, and particularly zoom lenses, exhibit distortion of one sort or another. Barrel distortion, that makes the image bulge at the center like a barrel. Or pincushion distortion, makes the image contract in the center like a pincushion. And sometimes you get wave distortion. That combines both of the previous types of distortion in a single image. These kinds of distortions come under the general classification of geometric distortion. They are particularly obvious in images that include straight, vertical, or horizontal lines. Photoshop includes a function to fix geometric distortion, and I was surprised to find that Lightroom does too. Extreme wide-angle lenses introduce a phenomenon that our eyes detect as distortion when we view an image taken with such a lens too far away. I show an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website of a motorcyclist. Actually, you just see the hands of the motorcyclist and the handlebars and the road in front of him along with the earth, which looks very, very curved. Now, if you would lean in very close to the screen and look at the image, it would look right, but we don't do that. We see it from further away, so you need to fix that apparent distortion. How? Well, it's really easy. There's a checkbox. You click it to enable profile corrections. This works because Lightroom will know what kind of camera you used and what lens you used to capture the image. And the automatic correction will work if you use a Nikon camera or a Canon camera and any of several Nikon or Canon lenses. But hold on, if you don't use Nikon or Canon gear, there is hope for you. Photoshop also includes a feature that can help correct chromatic aberration. That's the result of a lens's inability to focus all colors at a single convergence point. And this problem is seen even in some very expensive lenses. It's particularly a problem with images that have a light source at the back or that include the sky. In the past, removing chromatic aberration was both difficult and time-consuming. Now, Photoshop makes it relatively easy, but I'm talking about Lightroom. And I was very surprised to find that Lightroom has this same feature. Lenses, particularly when they're wide-angle lenses, can create dark corners. This is called vignetting. The effect is sometimes applied intentionally to focus the viewer's attention on the center of an image, but sometimes it's not a desired effect. 
Photoshop has tools that fix the problem, and, and yes, I was surprised to find that Lightroom does too. If you need to use your camera's highest ISO speed, the resulting image will be specked with color and luminance noise. You'll see an example of that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, a picture of a candle with a dark background, obviously taken at a very high ISO. Lightroom 2 could remove most of the luminance and color noise, but the result would be a mushy photograph that was largely desaturated and that had lost its distinct boundaries between objects. Lightroom 3 has added several new controls that allow you to retain most of the detail while getting rid of most of the noise. And in addition to all this, Lightroom 3 includes sports car performance. Adobe achieved this by allowing some operations that aren't as time-sensitive to take longer. By doing that, they made it possible for functions that do need immediate response, screen refreshes, for example, to happen faster. The combination of improved noise reduction and sharpening is such an improvement that Adobe even recommends allowing Lightroom 3 to reprocess any images that were processed under Lightroom 2, and they've made that pretty much automatic. To see why reprocessing is so important, take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see an image that is a tiny part of a photo from above a forested area. The Lightroom 2 image is on the left, the Lightroom 3 version is on the right, and you will notice significant additional improvements in the Lightroom 3 image. It's subtle, but it's definitely there. And after talking about how you can get rid of all the bad noise, I can tell you that you can add grain to photos. There are some good reasons to do that in certain circumstances. Post-crop vignetting has been enhanced. You can export slideshows to high-resolution video, complete with sound. The print module allows you to create custom print packages. Output to the web offers improved templates and a better watermark function. The entire import process has been re-architected to make it much better and much easier to understand. And you get still another high-end feature. Do I sound like I'm selling a knife set? Tethered captures. What this means is that you can connect the camera to your computer and have Lightroom display images as soon as the camera captures them. Yes, this is a feature that professionals would use. High-end amateurs would use. Those who want to experiment with various camera settings might use. If you're in one of those groups, you're going to love that. Lightroom is on the way to stores now, and I already know that if you are serious about photography, you're going to want this version. A full review will follow in a few weeks once I've had enough time to take a closer look. At this point, I've been using it for a little less than a week. In short circuits, there was a message in my spam box. Hello, rponder at spamarest.com. The message began. The user Marquis suggests you to become friends on YouTube. Offers and acceptance of offers on friendship simplify tracing of that your friend's place in the selected works, add or estimate, and also simplifies video departure by all or to the selected users. To accept or reject this invitation, pass in inbox. Okay, the phrasing makes it obvious that this writer is not a native speaker of any form of English, most likely a native Slavic speaker, not somebody that YouTube, owned by Google, would allow to write for public consumption. And still, I wonder how many people fell for this ruse. The message led to a file at UUCGB.org. It turns out to be owned by a church in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I looked up the registrar information and wrote to the church's website administrator, suggesting that they might want to take this file off their website. The response from the church so far? Zero. Nothing, not a word, nary a peep, silence, no response, all quiet on the Eastern Front.
Well, the same gang that is sending millions of messages claiming to be from YouTube every day is also sending a similar number of messages every day claiming to be from Twitter. Even the picture is the same. Now, I can understand being responsible for a website that's been attacked and hacked by criminals. What I find beyond comprehension is the utter lack of a response to a warning. Another similar batch of messages claims to come from Microsoft Outlook support in all lowercase letters. Microsoft does not refer to itself in lowercase. The messages are written by people who are illiterate in terms of U.S. English, but they point to applications that will take over your computer if you run them. Remember Hill Street Blues? Remember Sergeant Phil Esterhouse? Remember, hey, let's be careful out there. Wiser words were never spoken. When I wrote about the Microsoft Ergonomic Keyboard 4000, I called it the worst keyboard ever. I also mentioned that I had complained to Microsoft and that the company planned to send a replacement. The replacement I wanted, an older model with a key configuration that my fingers were familiar with, turned out not to be in stock and turned out never to be in stock again, ever. Instead, Microsoft replaced the worst keyboard ever with a natural wireless ergonomic 7000 desk set that sells for nearly double what I paid for the worst keyboard ever. So that's one of two things that Microsoft did right. Although the insert, delete, home end, and page up, page down keys are still in what I consider to be the same goofy configuration I loathed on the 4000, I shouldn't have any problems with the key lettering wearing off. On the 4000 I purchased, the keys are black and the letters painted on. After only a few months, the letters were gone for most of the keys. By the way, an additional note here. In a house with mostly light-color cats, a black keyboard is probably not the best color. But I digress. I had some misgivings about accepting a wireless device because I had tried a wireless mouse and keyboard in the past, twice actually, only to return them after just a few days. Now granted, that was a long time ago, and the wireless devices were much less sophisticated in those days, but I have so far managed to avoid them until now. So far, both the mouse and the keyboard seem to be working as expected, and I'm actually enjoying the absence of wires. I might become a fan. Maybe it is possible to instruct elderly canines in the performance of new entertainment routines after all. The moral of this story is this. Let companies know if you are not satisfied with the quality of their goods. Microsoft surprised me by being so responsive and so willing to fix what I considered to be an obvious shortcoming. Not all companies are willing to go this far, but it doesn't hurt to ask. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.